welcome to Angry Robots podcast, What the SFF. I am Gemma Crefield. I'm here today talking with Tyler Hayes and Syriac Harris about their books, The Imaginary Corpse and Force Destroys the Universe. So Tyler, would you like to take us away and tell us a bit about your book? Uh, certainly. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Tyler Hayes, The Imaginary Corpse. The Imaginary Corpse is my fantasy noir mashup about an ex-imaginary friend living in the land of unwanted ideas, facing trauma, anxiety, and the first serial killer of ideas. Perfect. Sounds good. Uh, I've pitched it before as Raymond Chandler meets the Velveteen Rabbit. I've also pitched it as Sin City meets Toy Story, I believe is what we put on the back cover. Yes, it was. Uh, that was coined by our head of sales, Vicky Hartley. Um, and I thought it was perfect when she came up with it in the meeting. So I just sort of latched hold of it and was like, yes, that's what this book is about. Excellent. Then pass my thanks on to Vicky because <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> I will. Uh, so Syriac, tell us about Horse Destroys the Universe. Okay. Well, yes. Um, I think the title says it all, really. It's a, <laughs> a story about a horse who destroys the universe. Wow. I, I never would have guessed that. that is <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, to give a, a, a bit more detail, it's uh, basically the story of, of a, a horse who gets uh, mixed up in a science experiment that goes a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so the horse is... Uh, is uh, have has its uh its intellectual uh capacity is expanded to the point where it starts to realize being a horse is is it doesn't give you much control over over your life and and uh and so it starts to uh use its extra brain power to to take back that control and and things escalate from there really mhm Right. Got to watch out for those horses. You really do. You never know what's going on behind their eyes. <laughs> Not a lot, <laughs> I shouldn't imagine. <laughs> Except for Buttercup, obviously. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that was the interesting thing about writing it, is to try and get inside the mind of a, of a horse. Yeah. And... Did you observe a lot of horses? Is that how you did it? Well... I... I guess you could say so. I mean, I grew up in the countryside, so you you were never that far away from a horse at, at, right, any, right. at any point in time. Uh, so yeah, you get to see them, and they get to see you, and you just look at each other, and and you'd both be wondering what the hell the other one was thinking. <laughs> and and that uh, is the book you wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah and right. and my sister owned a horse for a while, so I'd get her talking all about what it what it gets up to and and the kind of the weird personalities that horses have and stuff like that mm-hmm. so i thought mm, well i guess they're kind of just like you and me in a sense yep yeah, yeah just with a, a longer nose and yeah. uh harder uh, harder uh, feet a longer tail <laughs> yes yeah great so um what i find so interesting about the, these two books together is uh is how they both have such an unconventional narrator. Um, so in the case of Horse Choice the Universe, as we just said, it's a horse uh, named Buttercup. And in The Imaginary Corpse, it's Tippy the Triceratops, who is a stuffed toy. Um, so, so Tyler, can you tell us about how you created your protagonist and what you like best about him? Sure. Um, so Tippy is actually based on an actual stuffed animal who is in the other room as we speak. Aww. Thank you. He is, a, he actually came to my book launch with me. Um, <laughs> he is a little stuffed yellow triceratops. 
and I decided he was kind of the center of a game of let's pretend I played with my dad when I was a kid. And I, at some point later in my life, decided um, I wanted to do something with that. Uh, and the imaginary corpse kind of grew organically around him. And then I sort of figured out mm-hmm. who this tippy actually was going to be once I had the skeleton of the story I wanted to tell. Um, so the idea of Tippy as this kind of traumatized, anxious, um, somewhat bitter, but somewhat hopeful figure uh, really all stemmed from, this is who I need to be in this slot. Let me marry that to who Tippy was to me as a little kid and has been to me as this stuffed animal that I've kept my whole life um, and see what comes out. And I think my favorite thing about the end product there was... Um, the contradictions inherent in who he is um, in that he is on the one hand, very clearly constructed after like within the narrate within the narration constructed out of noir detective tropes, but at the same time has like a little kid's optimism um, has kind of a lot of empathy and a lot of caring. And those cause him a tug of war that is actually part of his internal conflict throughout the book. And that was what I found really fascinating to write through him as my narrator. Great. Um, so, Syriac, same question for Buttercup. Can you tell us um, how you created him? Yeah, or her. I, her, I, sorry. I, her. I, well, I didn't actually specify which which gender it is, uh, so you can take your pick, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I guess it all stemmed from the from the central premise that I had right at the beginning, which was that I wanted to take the the most unbelievable idea I could think of and somehow uh, try and make it believable and t- turn it into a story. Uh, so the idea I came up with was of a, a horse destroying the universe. So it it kind of, uh, the process of, of then having the horse tell the story, it, well, that, it just seemed to make sense to, to do it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, like I say that horses, they're not known for having any any kind of uh, control over their lives. They have almost zero agency in yeah. anything that they, I mean, the whole history of humans and horses for thousands of years, we've basically been using them like machines. So I thought it would make a, a kind of a fun twist to have, uh, to, to give this horse the ultimate control over everything. Mm-hmm. And from there, it just made sense for the horse to, be like telling the story telling its own story and uh and and so from there i had to kind of think well what how what is a horse actually thinking and 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 i guess i guess that's that's what really uh drew me towards the whole idea of of telling it from the horse's perspective uh because then i could i could it gave me the chance to to look at humanity from the point of view of this this alien being, yeah, uh, and and kind of look at look at all the the weird stuff that we do from the from an outside perspective, mm-hmm. which is uh, is quite fun. <laughs> yeah, we are kind of weird. <laughs> I would imagine, especially to a horse who, um, as Buttercup thinks about, is all to do with carrots and the carrots that they give and the carrots they take away. Yeah, and I mean, because because the horse starts from a, a very basic intellectual uh, foundation like that, it it 
it gives you the chance to analyze everything that we do, uh, it, all, the, all the complex machinations of, of human civilization and, and strip them back to their the, the most basic level in order to make everything that we do understandable to the, and it, the intellect of a horse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it just, it just gives a, a unique kind of perspective to everything when you, yeah. when you, when you do that. Yeah, definitely. I, I know I don't tend to think about things in terms of an animal's point of view, but it is interesting to read about. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it was interesting so, to imagine to try and imagine it because you can't. Yeah, I bet. You can't literally know what a horse is going to be thinking, <laughs> but you, you can you can kind of make some educated guesses. Yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about some other conventional narrators, unconventional narrators. Sorry, in uh, science fiction and fantasy, whose whose stories have you read that have really stuck with you? Anybody want to go? Uh, I'll I'll take a crack. Um, so, right, right off the top of my head, uh, there is a short story by John Wiswell called Tank, with an exclamation point, whose mm-hmm. narrator and main character, well, POV character, I think it's a third person limited, is a tank. Oh. Um, who is attempting to attend their first fan convention. Right. Okay. Um, and it is an absolutely fantastic, heartwarming little story about this socially awkward tank. <laughs> um and I found Tank more sorry the tank's name is literally Tank. Oh, okay. Um I found Tank more sympathetic than a lot of human narrators I've encountered in the last couple wow. of years. And that's available online. Like I said Tank with an exclamation point. Um also Murderbot, Martha Wells's Murderbot Diaries with a big mm-hmm. capital M uh the, from the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. Again is more human than most human protagonists. Um, and the way it mm-hmm. talks about its world is so fascinating because it is so human and yet so divorced from the human experience around it. Like it, it assumes that it is like the people around it and that it understands. And yet the things it doesn't understand form so much of the tension of the books. And I, I absolutely find them hypnotic every time I read them. Wow. They're very good picks there. I like it. I like it. Syriac, have you got any that you like? Um, to be honest, I can't, I can't actually think of any uh, non-human uh, narratives that I've, no? I've ever read. I'm, su- I'm, I'm sure I must have at some point, but there aren't really any that spring to mind. Well, see, this is the trouble. They're told so well that you don't think uh, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> Possibly, I, yeah. I personally love uh, The Book Thief, um, which is told through the uh, point of view of death. I don't know if either of you have read it, but it is it is a lovely, lovely book. Uh, very poetic, very, very heartwarming and also heartbreaking at the same time. Um, and I know there's Delicious Foods, which is told from the point of view of cocaine, which, you know, also very From the point of view of cocaine? Yeah, so. I know, right? How do they convince you that cocaine has a, a, a consciousness? Well, I mean, it, it's storytelling at its best. It really is. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's told through cocaine, but it's about two people that are addicted to it. So, um, yeah. so yeah, definitely check that one out. Anyway, back to your guys' books. So um, I just want to take a couple of quotes from each of them just because I love them so much. Um, and I think that they these 
quotes that I've picked really speak to the heart of the books themselves. So I'll go for Horse Destroys the Universe first. Um, Humans had won the world because they learnt the rules of the game, while none of the other players even realised they were playing. Now, I know I've picked this quote, but um, Syriac, can you tell us a bit more about this passage? Yeah, so that's the point in the story where the horse is... uh... The horse has been describing its intellect growing gradually over time as the, the scientists are, are adding bits, more bits to its brain. And this is the point where it's, it's starting to realise that the world around it is controlled by humans. And uh, they, the reason they control everything is because nothing else even knows what the hell is going on. Uh, yeah. So it's it's like a turning point in the horse's in the horse's life where it it, it realizes that if it if it wants to get what it wants, it's going to have to not only play this game against the humans, but it's going to have to find a way to to beat them at it mm-hmm. uh, and work out what the game actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in but it in in another sense, it has to almost invent reinvent the game so that it can be playing it without the humans realizing that mm. they're playing the horse's game. So it, it's it's like the horse has reached a tipping point where it, it's it's no longer trying to catch up with the humans. It's it's realizing it's going to have to overtake them and mm-hmm. start in reinventing the rules of the of the game. And that's when things get interesting. Not that it wasn't interesting. But... <laughs> yeah, things, <laughs> things start to get very strange. Okay, and on to the imaginary corpse. This one that I've picked uh, it goes, We make sense of a world that sometimes refuses to make sense. We remind everyone that the world is basically a good place, even especially when it seems anything but. So Tyler, can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so uh, that's a fascinating pick. It's from near the end of the book, um, as Tippy is kind of recounting the events, the events of the book, which I won't get into because we should let readers find that out for themselves. Um, Indeed. But it it is sort of him uh, revisiting his his mission statement, and in a way, kind of revisiting my mission statement. You know that he's mm-hmm. going back over what his purpose in life is and was, what he was kind of what the little girl who dreamed him up dreamed him up to do um and what Mm -hmm. he wants to be doing with his life um and this is him reflecting back on that with um notably less bitterness than when he first brings it up early in the book so uh, i don't want to get into how he gets there but it's a very important passage because it is really um it is really saying okay he's come full circle he's figured something out he gets something about himself and about the world he is living in that he did not get at the beginning. Great. Okay. Fab. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, but both of your stories, there is definitely some underlying messages to the two of them, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. no lie detector. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. So, uh, Syriac, do you want to tell us a bit about, about yours? Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, there's there's several kind of layers of, of subtext i suppose you could call it but about... yeah peel back that onion tell us about it <laughs> well it's weird it's weird because i didn't actually i didn't actually plan to have anything any kind of underlying messages when i was writing it when i started writing it i just wanted it to be like this fun adventure story 
mm-hmm. and all of that stuff just kind of appeared. Yeah, uh, I guess because um, because of the nature of the story, it's basically about everything going wrong, and so you have to think of reasons for everything to go wrong and of course everything goes wrong because people make bad choices and so it becomes it it, it kind of became this this almost like a, a satire on our relationship with technology mm-hmm. uh, in particular um it became a well i guess at its most basic level it's it's a story about the the stupidity of intelligence. So it, it, <laughs> it's it concerns itself with various kind of uh, types of intelligence, like machine intelligence, human intelligence, collective intelligence, and and it it explores the ways in which they can go right and the ways in which they can go wrong. And uh, yeah, I think it's kind of relevant to to the way things are at the moment because. People talk a lot about um, artificial intelligence these days, mainly in the context of, of how unintelligent it is and yeah. how it gets things wrong. And uh, and then, of course, we've got human intelligence, which it, which isn't really going all that well at the moment either. <laughs> it's just a very sorry state of affairs for us, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of amusing as well. So it, it's plenty of uh, fuel for for writing a, an entertaining story. I think. Yes, definitely. I think I think that's that's very true. I liked your um, how stupid intelligence really is. Like, I think you should <laughs> yeah you should put that on a t-shirt or something. That's great. Well, when when you think about it, all intelligence has to be stupid because it's it's always going to be stupid next when you put it next to an intelligence that's greater than that. Very true. Very true. Getting really philosophical <laughs> with us there. Yeah, well, it, it, this the, my book. It kind of it was it ended up being a lot more philosophical than I planned it to be. <laughs> I don't know that's where all good, that came from. Posing the questions—that's what science fiction is all about. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, it all just kind of fell out of my head while I was writing it. I suppose. That's good. That's good. I think um, a lot of the times when you come to writing, you realise what it is you care about a lot when you start writing. I mean, I'm assuming the same sort of thing happened with you, Tyler, when you were writing The Imaginary Corpse? Um, yes and no. Um, I definitely came to it with... I came to it with something I wanted to talk about, but what I wound up talking about wasn't quite that. <laughs> um, so... Right. The book came from a place of I wanted to talk about uh, mental health was kind of a, uh, mm-hmm. a side. Mental health was kind of a dimension I decided to add when I was sort of punching the book up and going, OK, how do I make this not just Toy Story noir? Like, how do I make it not just a facile noir detective story, but everyone's a stuffed animal? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mental health was something is something near and dear to my heart uh, because it is something I struggle with. Uh, I have both an anxiety disorder and uh, PTSD. And so I thought that could be an interesting dimension to go with uh, in the book. You know, I came up with the idea of what if, what if you had something like the Velveteen Rabbit where, you know, quote, the nursery, ma- the nursery magic can make you real, but then some kind of trauma becomes mixed in with your identity, 
which is where Tippy came from, which is where a lot of the people around him came from. Um, not everyone is from violent trauma. Um, and that was kind of where it became just much more generally a book about mental health and empathy. Because I went, I don't want it to just be that everyone here experienced violence, though, of course, violence will be a side of it because violence is a side of how PTSD happens to people. Um, yes, yes. But also emotional, emotional abuse, great tragedy, various other things that I, I would probably need a trigger warning for. Um, but then I, you know, I wound up doing all this research, trying to make sure that I stuck the landing on all that stuff, because I went, I am not going to wade into these very difficult, very triggering topics and make a hash of it. I just refuse to do that yeah. to myself or to anybody reading it. Um, and then it became a book about empathy and social justice, kind of almost accidentally. Like I stumbled into it and I went, okay, why not both? And yeah. just kept going. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I love how these sorts of things tend to snowball, that like you start off with, like you say, one idea and then you just keep going and going and then it just builds to to these amazing books that you guys have created. Thank you so much. Um, so... These books have been very well received um, because they're great. Um, but uh, has anyone said anything about your books that you maybe didn't expect them to or that you hadn't thought about the books themselves for, as a writer? Um, well, I, I've been writing this book for about four years now, so there's, there's probably nothing that anyone could say that I haven't already thought about, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't really ha have anything, any... Uh, any insights that anyone else has provided me about it but how, how about you Tyler um yeah actually there was one the other day in a book review um I've suddenly forgotten their name and I apologize to you reviewer whose name I've forgotten um who brought up kind of this meta level of the story that I had left very vague and they decided to really dive deep into in their thinking about it of without spoiling too much um, events in the real world feed back into the imaginary world in various ways, and that forms some of the backbone of the plot. But they also pointed out the ways in which the plot implies but never outright states that perhaps Tippy's actions in the imaginary world are affecting the real world. And I left yeah. that really open. I have my thoughts about it, but their thoughts about it were not ones that I, that I had had. Um, you know, they, they were going like, they, they were a little vague. I believe they ended it with like, I could write an entire thesis on this, which as a person who had to write a thesis really made my heart bounce. But, um, <laughs> but, but also just, I was fascinated to see someone engage with this thing that really isn't big in the book. I don't dwell on it for more than a paragraph or two, but they were really fascinated and they unpacked all this stuff that I looked at and I went, huh, I did that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so nice that someone can find yeah, something absolutely. that you maybe didn't think of yeah that's really great yeah so um so how did you both get into writing i know um syriac you had you had a fairly unconventional uh way in as your narrator is um because you you started um and still are doing animated videos right yeah yeah i mean I'm, i've been writing as a hobby for years i mean before i st ever started animating anything mm -hmm. um 
But then I guess my animation career is just a hobby that got out of control anyway. So it's, <laughs> in a good way, in a very good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these things, I never really think of, of myself as being a, a, like an animator or an author or anything. I'm, I just like making stuff. And <laughs> if people like it, then, then all well and good. Uh, in in terms of actually getting a, something published, I've I, I've always had it in in my mind that I wanted to to write a book and get it published, but I had to wait until the internet made it easy for me. Ah, uh, the internet. <laughs> Which is kind of the same with with my animation. Uh, I had yeah. to wait until YouTube appeared so I could just upload my videos to the internet and, and let people watch them. So what do you mean you had to wait for the internet to get your book published? How did it, how did it work? Well, I'd written this book um, and I wasn't actually planning to, to do anything with it. And then I got an email from Unbound, uh, the publisher who do like uh, crowdfunded uh, publishing. Right. And they, they'd seen some, they'd seen some uh, stuff I'd written on Twitter and they were asking me if I was interested in in making a book about my videos or something. Mm-hmm. And and I just said to them, yeah, sure. Um, I've I've also been writing this science fiction novel about a horse. And they were like, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, we'll have a look at it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can you imagine getting that email? I've just written this about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't. It definitely wasn't what they were expecting to happen. I don't think. But I, I, I thought, what the hell? I mean, it, it everything that I, everything that I've achieved has has just seems to have happened by, I'd like to say, a, a mixture of luck and hard work, but mostly luck, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But um, <laughs> I think that happens to a lot of people. To be fair, yeah, it, it's yeah, all so, about timing. It really is. Yeah, and and I just thought, well. I'm just going to go for it and see what they say about this this book I've written. And they said it was really good and, and I should try and get it published. And, and, and that's where it all started, really. And that's what you did. If it wasn't for that, it would just end up sitting in a drawer in my house, waiting to be found after I died or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it would have got discovered before then. Yeah, maybe. But Tyler, you had a similar um, thing with timing on The Imaginary Corpse, didn't you? Yes. Um, So my journey to writing is much more traditional, um, and I can get into that in a minute. But the thing you're alluding to is that I was a week out from giving up on this book when Angry Robot said they wanted to publish it. Um, I I wrote it. It It took me about four years, bell to bell, to write it. And I had shopped it around, and I was getting a lot of very glowing rejections like a lot of we like this but which is positive it is especially in a rejection heavy business like writing you know of course i'm gonna get a ton of rejections i wasn't i wasn't despairing but i was kind of looking at it and my writing group and i were looking at it and going i think the problem might be that a lot of people don't want to publish this by an unknown um Mm -hmm. you know that this is a great book maybe for your second book after you've made a you know, a splashy debut with something a little more mainstreamy. Um, right. And then, you know, that discussion happened after I had submitted to Angry Robot um, and, you know, had a, was just uh, like you do with everything, was assuming Angry Robot was going to say no and just went on with my life. 
And uh, then all of a sudden, like a week after I said, okay, if none of my current submissions pan out, I'm going to put this in a drawer and I'll come back to it after I've got a little bit of a name to trade on. And then I got that email from mm -hmm. Angry Robot who, thank, thank goodness you decided to make the subject line offer on the imaginary corpse. So I didn't have to wonder <laughs> what was in it. <laughs> um, and yeah, then I, you know, I sat there and shoved both my hands in my mouth so I didn't scream at work. <laughs> and it all, it was all downhill from there. So apparently all I had to do was completely give up and surrender. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that is what you have to do. You just have to let time do its yeah, thing. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's such a sweet story. So I know we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but um, tell us about your writing process. So how did you write these books? And um, I know you've already told me how long they take. It was about four, four years for both of you, right? Yeah, yes. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so, Syriac, tell me, tell me how you wrote this book. How did it come about? Well, it's, it all started um, back in 2015. I had a month, a month off, and I thought I fancied doing something a little bit different. So I thought I'd, I'd try writing a book. Uh, it's something I've done before, but it's never something I figured that anyone that I'd actually show anyone. It's just for my own amusement. So it was around uh, the time of the National Novel Writing Month uh, in November. So I gave myself a month to write the 50,000 words. And at the end of the month, I had 50,000 words and, and the book was only half finished. <laughs> so I thought I'd just carry on. So uh, a couple more months and, and I finished the first draft. And of course, being first draft, it was just a real bare bones of a book the characters didn't have any character some of the chapters were in the wrong places and stuff like that so the next over the next few years I just chipped away at it in my spare time polishing it and tidying it up and uh and I guess what I do is is devote a month or or two to basically rewrite the whole thing and then and then spend a, a few months away from it so that then when I next come to it, I'd almost have like a fresh pair of eyes to read it. Right. And that way I could like spot things that didn't make sense because it was almost like this This story is just so complicated that when I'd read it again, there's stuff I wouldn't even have remembered writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was like kind of reading it from, from a fresh perspective, which really yeah. helped. So you would do it in, in like blocks of time? rather than like continuous yeah, yeah. If I condensed the whole writing down, if I was working at it full time, it'd probably maybe only be like half a year maybe, I suppose. Oh, really? Wow. But then then the, t the time in between gives you a lot of, lot of time to, to think about the story and the characters as well. So you can't completely discount that time. I yeah, I think it's really important to have that time away. And it also, it's... It feels like a, a bit of a luxury as well, having that, being able to just put it to one side for several months and then come back to it. If it, if it was like a, a job, if I was like a, a professional author, I, I'm not sure if I'd, I'd be able to do that. Yeah, I think time restraints would probably conflict. Yeah, which, which is interesting because it, it really made the book different in a lot of ways, being able to keep coming back to it. It's, it definitely helped. Yeah. I don't. Th I don't know if I if I was to write another book, I don't know if I'd be able to just sit down and, and hammer it out in half a year. Yeah, you'd still need the time in between, or, or if I'd still need all that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, I always think that it it helps to go back to something rather than to do it all in one. 
Um, Tyler, what about you? How did you do the imaginary corpse? How did it work? Um, somewhat similar to what Syriac is talking about. I, uh, imaginary corpse is actually kind of the birth of what has now become my writing process, um, which is very ordered until it's suddenly complete anarchy. <laughs> I basically do what Syriac said, though I tend to overdraft. For example, there I cut about 30,000 words out of the imaginary corpse after the first draft. Oh, really? um, but it was like a whole other novella got left on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Mostly consisting of the words just and that, to be fair. <laughs> uh, so it is, I do, I try to work five days a week. I have a day job, but I try to work five days a week, you know, half an hour to two hours each of those days. Mm -hmm. um, and it's similar to Syriac. I I do the whole draft at a go, trying to edit as little as I can. And that's why it winds up so long is because I wind up just going on these long tangents and weird bird walks um, of characters just kind of navel gazing about things. You know, I find sections where I clearly didn't know what was going to happen next. And so I sat there tell it, retelling the story to myself for a couple paragraphs while I figured it out, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then I will usually put down what I'm working on and go work on something else, either a totally different book or some short stories, or I'll deal with some business stuff, you know, whatever I've got that I can do for a couple of weeks mm -hmm. in there. Um, so that when I come back to edit, I'm, I've got relatively fresh eyes. Yeah. And now that I'm working more on deadline, I've had to compress that timeline a little bit. I wouldn't be able to take those four years to write another book. Yeah. Um, but it is still similar to that. Um, that I kind of go first draft, let it sit, edit. If I think it's good to go, ask someone else to look at it. If I don't think it's good to go, do another cycle. Mm -hmm. Once it comes back from someone looking at it, take another run at it. Then it's time to get it to the agent and start talking about letting people see it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you said about uh, timing in that you won't have another chance to do the same as you've both done with these debut novels. If you continue to, to write, then your next one's always going to be on a deadline. It's not going to be a, a luxurious thing where you're just like, oh, yeah, if it comes to me, it comes to me. Like the next time is is going to be contracted for for a specific amount of time. I think that's really tough. And I think that's why the second book tends to be so much harder for uh, for everybody. But speaking of second yes. books, uh, do you do you guys have plans for future titles? Well, I'd quite I'd quite like to do um, a kind of a sequel to this book. Yeah. Telling the same story again from from the point of view of somebody else who's involved in it. Right. So not a sequel. I think it's a sidequel. They call it. So it's the, it's the same timeline, but from from somebody else's point of view, that's yeah. that's something I'd quite I'd quite like to do. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Because the way that you because it's narrated, you only get to see the story from the narrator's point of view. Yeah, side of things, and there's so many other interesting things going on in that world that that I have to ignore because the horse isn't aware of them going on. So yeah. yeah, it'd be it'd be nice to to go back and explore some of that a bit. Who would you who would you do it from? Um, I I'm I'm not going to say too much about that <laughs> at the moment because giving too much away. Sorry. Yeah. Well, personally, I love Betty. Just just going to throw that out there. Um, I think she's. 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that she get up, gets up to that you don't get to see, which I'd like to explore some yeah, more. That would be interesting. I think there's some um, there's some interesting stuff going on definitely, there. Definitely, Tyler. What about you? So, uh, I have a sequel to the Imaginary Corpse actually written, um, and I have thoughts on another sequel kind of written down in a file that I'm like, I'll come back to this when I have a second. Um, right. And I'd love to be able to show the world those, but you know, yeah. but you know, we'll have to see. The sequel largely revolves around, again, keeping spoilers out, but I want to give you sure. a taste. A debt that Tippy incurs in book one comes Ooh. due in book two. Oh, I see. And it gets him involved in something much bigger than he's expecting. Mm. In... It's a bit dark, yeah. I mean, you know, about on the level of darkness of the first book, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, great. Okay, so I just just to shake things up a bit here, I was just wondering what you guys thought. Um, what would happen if Tippy and Buttercup were ever to meet? <laughs> How do you think their conversation would go? Wow. Um, I'll let you go first, Syriac. <laughs> right. Wow. Give me a minute. It's interesting because um, Tippy. I understand Tippy lives in this this uh, still real this yeah. world of ideas. Let, let's not be in the still real because I think that would govern a lot a lot more um, of how things would go. Let's just say just in any kind of world, so like the regular world. Well, it, well, it's possible because because Buttercup ends up living in this this virtual uh, environment. Mm. And you could feasibly recreate Tippy's world within that, Indeed. or as a or as a background process Ooh. to that, where Tippy might even be a part of Buttercup's consciousness that Buttercup isn't aware of. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> yeah, you see that yes, there are possibilities. <laughs> I can see. Hold on, I'm, I'm registering a trademark on this idea right now. <laughs> Um, I think Tippy's reaction to Buttercup would be, I, I love that idea. So go piggybacking on that. I feel like Tippy would, a lot of it would be about Tippy wanting to help Buttercup make better decisions. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, um, yes. like, you, you know, that it would be Tippy wanting to help Buttercup. And a lot of that would be Tippy trying to come to understand where Buttercup is coming from, which is going to be. It'll be easier for him than it would be for the humans around Buttercup because, mm -hmm. you know, he's used to the idea of putting himself in the shoes of some very weird clientele. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, but I think that he would spend a lot of time, like, how do I help this person, this horse, <laughs> um, figure out figure out how to, how to maybe do better things than just destroying the universe? I'm not, like... My head, my head cannon now is that we have a fix somewhere called Horse and Tippy Rebuild the Universe. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I smell sequel. Yes. <laughs> oh, that sounds like too much of a happy ending for me. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> well, you happen. know, uh, we can we can fight to the death over who gets to actually write the ending. <laughs> no. Okay, so other than Tippy and Buttercup. Who are your favorite characters in your books? Ooh. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, 
I am going to jump out right now and say um, I love uh, Big Business is actually a big favorite of mine. I mean, he's he's someone you love to hate, but I love him. Yeah, yeah I, I found him. He's such a fascinating challenge to write um, on a couple of levels. And I don't want to spoil him too much, but he is deliberately unsympathetic, but with moments of sympathy. And I don't really generally write sympathetic villains. Yeah. So he was an interesting exercise for me. You know, I like I like my villains evil. I like my villains self-justifying, but pretty clearly selfish. Yeah. And so writing him as someone who there is some tragedy in his background, but he's also an awful person was mm. uh, was kind of an interesting challenge. And I find him fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I would also throw out, getting into who she is is a spoiler, uh, but Breaker is a personal oh, big yeah. favorite. Um, she comes in midway in the book. I mm -hmm. love her so much. And I don't even like octopuses. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, octopuses are big. We stand octopuses in this house, but uh, but I totally understand. <laughs> what about you, Syriac? Who's your favorite? Um, oh, I'd have to say Betty, I guess. Yeah, I love Betty. She's just such a, a, a she's she's a she's a mixture of several people, real people that I've known. She's so quirky. I love her. Yeah, and and just kind of crazy and yeah. unpredictable yeah and, absolutely and has all these these ideas that are kind of wrong but she somehow justifies them to herself mm -hmm. to be right and and yeah she's like a force of a force of chaos <laughs> yeah. I, I decided that i loved her on that line where she says um Pull your knickers up, Tim. You're embarrassing the horse. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Betty, you and me, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from characters, let's let's end with you telling us what your favourite scenes are in your books. Favourite scenes? Without giving away spoilers. I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, it's your <laughs> book. You can tell people if you like, but... I think my favourite scene has to be... Uh... The one where Betty is giving a presentation mm -hmm. of her science project to an audience and things don't go quite as she had planned. <laughs> <laughs> things, things go about as badly as they could possibly go. Yeah, that really like taps into my fear of, uh, of, of doing presentations. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of inspired by all the talks that I've done. I've never had a, any talks that have gone quite that badly. But... Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'd be worried. <laughs> what about you, Tyler? What's your favourite? Oh, man. Um... Coming from the gut, uh, again, trying to be vague because sure. spoilers, um, there is a scene relatively late in the book um, where a new idea winds up in the still reel. Mm -hmm. And the other ideas, um, other ideas kind of gather around them and try to help them understand where they are and what has happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoy it because it is... It has a lot going on without being a traditional capital A action scene. Um, yes. Like it's it's a very emotional scene, but it's very dynamic. Um, you get to learn a little bit about a lot of people mm -hmm. and you get to kind of see the way this community bands together. Um, yeah. And, you know, kind of it's the moment of why is even why is Tippy this very bitter person with a, with a grain of hope in him really willing to fight for these people? And, you know, 
I finished writing that and I went, wow, if I didn't know these people, I'd go to the mat for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely true. I, I feel like that scene really slowed down like the whole atmosphere and you could really, it was almost like a magnifying glass on the characters. I, yeah, I really like that scene. Too. Thank you. Okay, well, I think um, I've probably exhausted you guys now. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us and, um, and for chatting about your books. As I say, they are both amazing. Horse Destroys the Universe and The Imaginary Corpse. They're both available now. Get on it. Go buy it from your favourite bookshop. Buy it online. Buy it wherever. Just, just go get them. They will thoroughly entertain you and leave you wanting more. And as it turns out, Sounds like there might be plans for some more, so you might be in luck. Once again, guys, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. My pleasure as well. Thank you for having me. I will speak to you soon, guys. Bye. Bye. Cheerio.